Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a platform performance and another chance, because I think Tony and I have done more than two or three platforms together, another chance to hear from Anthony Scher. Uh, you may have noticed we're not on the set of Travelling Light, which is Nicholas Wright's play, um, which uh, Tony is in at the moment here, of course, but we're on the set of Juno and the Paycock, and we've got to get off it by shortly after quarter to seven, otherwise we're in it. Um, but it's not entirely inappropriate, I guess, because a Dublin tenement um, is not a million miles removed from um, a turn-of-the-century, very poor shtetl, small-town small village in Eastern Europe at the start of the 20th century. But the rooms were a bit smaller, I guess. <laughs> um, most actors are expected to have versatility, but Anthony Scher's stage career, for which he's been garlanded with awards, has displayed an astonishing range of believably different characters. Richard III, Prospero, Shylock, Titus Andronicus, Stanley Spencer, Howard Kirk, and Arturo Ui, Ringo Starr, Edmund Keane, and Primo Levi. And his film career has included portraying Benjamin Disraeli and Chief Weasel in Wind and the Willows. <laughs> you may not have known that one. Um, he's an acclaimed writer and a very successful artist, and he was awarded a knighthood by the Queen in the year 2000. There'll be plenty of time for your questions, uh, but I'd like to start with some of mine. And, and with the background to Travelling Light, um, it, it's the world of the cinema, or the beginnings of the cinema, and it's based on a conceit that it's possible that the cinema, um, the early cinema, which was entirely run by um, Jews from Europe, Hollywood, um, actually had its beginnings in a shtetl somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, it's not an impossible conceit, but you play Jacob Bindle, a timber merchant who um, becomes the world's first movie producer. Tell us more about what attracted you to the play. Well, you know, there's a Jewish word, chutzpah, which means sort of cheek, and, and I love the chutzpah in Mickey Wright's play. I love the fact that he not only lets the people in this little shtetl invent cinema, but they also invent things associated with cinema, like the casting couch, because my character says he'll only finance the film if he can sleep with the girl. And the focus group, you know, that's a modern term for when they show films to audiences for the audience to criticize. Um, and, and I love that. I love the, that you see it in its raw, naive state. And indeed, my character, who is going to become the Sam Goldwyns and the, uh, you know, the, those moguls in Hollywood. Jack Warner. Jack Warner. Mm -hmm. um, is just this completely uneducated man. He's, he is illiterate, but who has a, a natural instinct for storytelling and for business, you know, which makes a great producer. And so at the moment I read it, I fell in love with the play and the part, and, you know, I wanted to do it. And um, we, you don't go on to be a Hollywood producer in the film, but somebody does. Yes, the, uh, the young man. The, the young man. And um, <clears throat> he's another very important character. His, his stage name is Mottle Mendel, and he's played by... Um, uh, Damien Maloney, 
and he's the son of a, of a shtetl photographer. Yes, that's how Nicky works the conceit. And they certainly did exist. Yes. Yes. And that this photographer has bought one of those Lumiere brother cinematographs that uh, were invented round about 1896, something like that. And yes, and the son, the, the man who, the photographer dies and the son arrives, discovers this, um, this new machinery and, and starts experimenting with it. I imagine, as with all national productions, that you and Nicky Wright and the rest of the cast had a lot of discussions about what shtetl life was like and what early cinema was like. Yes, and uh, Nick Heitner, the director, was determined that we would get the technical side of it, of, of the machinery and the working of this um, machine, perfect. And, and his, he, he set as his benchmark, he said, if, if Martin Scorsese comes to see this play, because <laughs> you know, Scorsese is a great, great expert on, on cinema, I want him to be convinced, he said. So <laughs> I don't think Scorsese has been along yet, but uh, there's an open invitation. <laughs> but we do see, there, is, there are some fascinating scenes in which this camera, which looks like a genuine Lumiere yeah. uh, yeah. camera, but possibly is a reproduction, a reproduction. Um, where, where we see um, the photographer come nascent to the movie maker, actually work out how to edit film, yes, yes. and I'm pleased to say that his girlfriend is slightly better at it than he is. Yes, I don't know how accurate that would be in real life. Well, again, you sort of believe it, don't you? You see them experimenting and finding their way, and uh, I, I believe it. it. It seems such a sophisticated medium now, cinema, but of course uh, it began as a simple thing, and you see them go on that journey. It began from the Nickelodeon, and people paying 10 cents to go to a show where they stood and saw something moving. Yeah. And then they would pay 25 cents, I think the moguls worked out they could make money this way, if they could sit down and watch a yeah. moving picture. Yeah. And so it continued. Uh, not many years later, I suppose that by the 1920s, um, Hollywood existed. Uh, have you got any favorite characters in that, that sort of panoply of people straight out of Eastern Europe who, as you say, probably weren't very well-educated. No, I don't, because... All very fluent in English at first. Yes. I didn't research that because, in fact, my character is a timber merchant. I do normally do... He's got do... plenty of chutzpah. <laughs> He's got lots of chutzpah. I do normally do a lot of research, but going to a timber mill was slightly beyond <laughs> call of duty, I thought. So, in fact, I didn't research the area that my character is an expert in. So, um, no, I, d I don't know about... Uh, because, those. you see, I, um, I, I, online you can find anything now, and I, I found um, a lovely article from the Center for Jewish History in New York called All That Glitters Is Not Goldwyn. It was about the early Hollywood moguls. And Sam Goldwyn had these... Um, because his English was not his first language and um, he wasn't that well-educated, he was known for his Goldwynisms, and one of them was, um, in two words, impossible. <laughs> And uh, one of the others was, uh, uh, of course, Jack Warner, who we've mentioned, um, who was a sort of frustrated stand-up. And um, when he was hosting Madame Chiang Kai-shek, a very distinguished woman in her day, um, as uh, the guest of honor at a big Hollywood dinner, 
he suddenly forgot himself and exclaimed and said to her, holy cow, I forgot to pick up the laundry. <laughs> What's she made of this? And um, uh, uh, Warner, Jack Warner um, used to tell a, 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 a story. Um, the greatest science, uh, scientist since Newton was Albert Einstein, and he said to Albert Einstein, you know, I have a theory about relatives too. Never cast them in a film. So <laughs> But what do you think people like that brought to the early movie business? A sort of feel for what people would enjoy? Yeah, and Kurtzberg again. I mean, you know, it was, it was uh, the, the, the early days of a new medium. And um, they, there's a kind of Jewish adventurousness, but an instinct for for what's going to work, what's going to make money, that those guys just naturally had, as, as you see my, my character have. I think that was it. Did, do you think he went on to make a lot of money, your character? Well, no, we find out that he, uh, in a pogrom, burned to death in his timber mill. So, um. You've been to, um, I suppose shtetls don't exist anymore, but you've certainly been to Lithuania to look at the sort of place that these characters may have come from, because your grandfather, or great-grandfather, was my, it? No, my grandfather and my grandmother, from my, my dad's dad and my mother's mother, were both from the same shtetl in Lithuania, a place called Plunga in Lithuanian, Plungyan, we, we knew it, in Yiddish from the stories. And uh, my first novel, Middle Post, actually sort of recreated the journey that my grandfather had made from this place to South Africa in about the 1890s. Uh, when I wrote the book, I couldn't go to Plunga, uh, because it was still under Soviet rule. But a few years later, and, and this was ironically on a national theater cultural visit, uh, they were going to Lithuania, and I said, would you help me if I come along on the, on the cultural visit to, to find this place? And they very kindly and generously helped me with a car and a driver and a translator. And I went there. and. It, it was extraordinarily moving because my family, as Jews, had left in a, with a kind of shame and fear. You know, the pogroms were happening in, in Poland at that time. They hadn't reached Lithuania, but they left with a, a deep sense of unease about their, their homeland. We're talking about what, the, the turn of the last 1890s. Century. 1890s. Mm. And they would never have believed that a Sher would have gone back a hundred years later, full of fascination, curiosity, to, to see where they had come from. Um, I was hoping to find information about them, but what I'd very stupidly forgotten, that between them leaving in the 1890s and me going back in the 1990s, there had been something called the Holocaust. And in June 1941, there was a massacre of all the Jews in, in this place. 
Um, and just to jump to the end of the story, I discovered that um, the Labour peer, Lord uh, Greville Janner, his family were also from uh, Plunga, and he had campaigned for years to get um, monuments, Holocaust monuments, set up all around Lithuania and succeeded. And a few years after he'd done that, my cousin, the playwright Ronald Harwood, had made his pilgrimage to Plunga and came back and told me that he'd seen the monument in the forest where the massacre had taken place. And he said the thing that really shocked him, that they had all the names on the monument, and there was the name Sher, 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 which was very sobering to think that if my family hadn't left when they had, they could have been one of those Shers. What were your impressions <clears throat> when you got there and saw what it was like relatively recently? Well, I was hoping for the kind of wooden buildings, you know, I had a sort of fiddler on the roof sort of uh, fantasy that it would look like that. But of course, they were ugly Soviet concrete blocks. But there was a moment when we came into the sort of town square, and the one thing that my grandmother had remembered she'd left as a little girl was a water pump in one corner of the square. And that was still there, and I was terribly moved to think that she had seen that as a little girl left and spent her life in South Africa, and I was now seeing it. Very moving. It's, it's certainly applies to me, and I don't know whether it applied to you, but I started getting really interested in my own ancestors relatively late in life. Yes. And, of course, in my case, both my parents had died, and there were all sorts of things I wanted to yes. know about yeah. especially my mother's childhood because yeah. she lost both her parents when she was very young and she was one of a family that were all farmed out to different people to look after them. And, um, but I didn't. And yes. Would your message be start early? <laughs> yes, but um, the interesting thing is that when I was researching Middle Post, uh, some of my, my parents' uh, siblings were all alive and they didn't know their history. And I found that significant because if you think of immigrant populations, Italians in America, or, you know, they take their stories with them. They're very proud of their stories. There's something about, as I said earlier, the shame with which people left Lithuania that meant they didn't take their stories with them. And they started a new life, and in this case in South Africa, and did well. And, of course, there's an irony and a tragedy here in that by not taking their stories with them, the Jews of South Africa often uh, became part of the, the, the white uh, nationalist party. Well, you know about that from your own family. Yes, and, you know, didn't draw the obvious comparisons uh, that, you know, they had been second-class citizens in in Lithuania, and, and were now first-class citizens, but part of a persecution. And whenever I talk about this, I know I'm going into very dangerous territory, and it's always important to say that there is a heroic, a small but heroic 
roll call of South African Jews who did make the comparison, whether Helen Sussman, Albie Sachs, Joe Slovo, Ruth First. There, there is a group that absolutely did make the comparison, but my family w wasn't among that group. Was there any element in your family of um, not denying their Jewishness, but um, it not being important as a slightly deliberate suppression of it? No, they were, they were very proud of being Jews, and they were observant Jews, but there was some, something about Eastern Europe and that side of it that they were in denial about mm. and didn't talk about. I asked that question because um, Jacob Bindle, the, you know, the yeah. wonderful, sort of outgoing, energetic um, man that anyone would want to meet today, I think, uh, is a very different kind of Jew from the one you, the, the last Jew you played, which was in the, your previous production, which was Arthur Miller's Broken Glass, Philip Gel yes. Gelberg. Yeah. Um, he changed his name slightly, um, who was repressing his own yes. Jewishness at the set in the 1930s. Yes. And, the, and his wife, of course, had a, um, a sort of neurotic paralysis, yes. um, poss possibly partly due to her husband, who was a wonderful part yes. for both, both yes. you and, and, um, and <clears throat> your, your other half, as it were. Um, the two contrasting characters completely. was completely fortuitous but right next to each other. Yes, mm -hmm. and in fact, I'm playing a trio of Jewish parts, one after the other, by pure chance. Philip Gelberg, who's this man very much in denial of his Jewish identity. Jacob Bindle, who is completely at ease with his identity. And very proud of it. Very proud of it. And the next part I'm playing is Freud, <laughs> who, who made it his job to investigate everyone's identity. <laughs> I'm doing a revival of Terry Johnson's play, Hysteria, where Freud meets Dali. Uh, we're doing that at Bath at the summer festival. So it's, a, as I say, this trio of Jewish parts. Something hugely to look forward to that. Um, will you be doing it in London, the, the Freud? Uh, not at first. We do it in Bath. We do a tour. And, but if it works out well, I'm sure we'll be aiming to bring it Good. into London. But Traveling Light has already traveled around the country in, in, in cinematic form, yes. uh, form uh, in that uh, live broadcasts, uh, live um, transmissions have uh, taken place. Uh, how difficult was that for you as actors, and how, how aware were you of presumably very insignificant cameras? No, they're not that insignificant. Oh. <laughs> they're, they're quite huge. Um, I'd always heard they tucked them away. No, they, 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 <laughs> these were monsters. And, and the whole sections of the stalls uh, are, are covered by platforms so that the cameras can move as well. Uh, you know, I had done uh, this kind of thing before where they film a, a live performance, normally over a few nights, and then cut them together. The difference with this one is that it's live. I had to just try not to think of that because if you make a mistake, it's going around the world, uh, which is quite an idea. But um, luckily, they do several uh, camera rehearsals uh, with you know the, the, the no audience, and you do the entire play with the cameras, and this becomes very boring to do, and everyone gets fed up with these, because you do the entire play with just for the cameras. So luckily, by the time you come to do the actual show, 
you're, you're sort of bored with this game. And, and so and it doesn't... The audience is even more important to you. <laughs> well, the, then there is an audience, yeah. and um, Emma Freud was presenting, and uh, she told the audience to be friendly, and I guess if someone called Freud tells you something to do, you do it. So uh, <laughs> they were very friendly. We had one of our best audiences that night. Did you have to be specially mic'd? Yes. And that's unusual as well, because you're carrying a, a mic. Where, did and, they, and where was the mic? Or shouldn't <laughs> I ask? <laughs> it was on a, on a strap uh, the, on the back here. But some of the other actors have to change costume a lot, very quick changes. So they had to have mics in each of their costumes, because otherwise uh, it could get left behind. And was the makeup a touch different for the cameras? Uh, they, they were very, uh, they scrutinized me carefully because I wear this big beard and hairpiece. Uh, what they do, this is very, I'm one of those boring camera rehearsals, they actually record it, and then the director, Nick Heitner, and the camera director watch it on a cinema screen next door at the National Film Theatre and study it and, you know, things like makeup, but also the, the way the shots are cut and, and everything. And that's a very good system that is before the actual live broadcast. I had read in an interview, but we know how inaccurate the press can be, that you were growing a beard for this part. Um, and I see no sign of no. that. Well, I was in a race against time because um, broken glass overlapped with the beginning of rehearsals of this. And I had to be clean-shaven in that. So I just couldn't get my hormones to <laughs> produce the beard fast enough, which is a real pity because I've, I've never, I haven't worn a false beard for years. And it's quite something to have your face encased in, in glue. <laughs> it's not very nice. Um, so anyway. Um, I'll open up to the floor in, in just a moment, but one, one thought before we do that. Um, I know in the past, because you're a fine artist and um, also fine, if I may put it this way, slightly crudely cartoonist, you can give it a, a quick impression of someone or something. Uh, and I remember you talking once about drawing your characters, famously Richard III, in the year of the king is full of your own yeah. conception of what he might look like, the, yeah. the malevolent spider. Did you do that at all for Travelling Light? I didn't. What I've started to do these days is I do a portrait after the show is over. A portrait, um, a self-portrait, but as the character. But I do it as I would have ideally liked the, 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 if I could have completely changed my shape. Because I remember the first time of reading the script of Travelling Light, and uh, you know the stage direction says, "Enter Jacob Bindle, a big, ebullient man." And I thought, "Well, I can't play big; I'm small." <laughs> so, in my portrait of Jacob, which I will paint when this is over, I will make him as big a man as he. Uh, deserved to be. In the meantime, I just have to do it with a bit of loud acting. He certainly appears big, as anyone who's seen the show will know. Um, final thought, really. What's it like just before you step out onto a lit stage when you're in there? Do self-doubt 
and um, even nervousness yes. uh, come, come, still come to you. It should do. And whenever people ask, you know, do you get nervous, do you get frightened, I say yes. And if I didn't, I'd be dead. You know, because to be alive is to acknowledge that to step out in front of this full house is a frightening thing to do. And it's good that you're frightened. It keeps you alert. And as long as you are in control of that fear, um, stage fright is a separate thing. And I've had to deal with that in the past. But Have you? Yeah. But if it's just ordinary fear, which you can handle and cope with, that's a rather good thing. Stage fright, um, I don't want to um, dig up something you don't want to talk about. No, but, I'm happy to, uh, but we've but run out of time, yeah. thank goodness. <laughs> Just one, one, one minute. Do uh, hugely established and acclaimed actors like you occasionally get a little stab of stage fright? No, which is self-doubt, I suppose. To come, I, I went through a phase where it really haunts you badly, and it's an ugly, unpleasant thing that really almost stops you being able to work. The routine version of it, as I say, is just a healthy amount of fear as you stand in the wings there to come out here and, and ask however many people to watch you for the next two and a half hours. And you can feel the audience every night being a little bit different. Yes. And, of course, actors love audience laughter, but audience silence, when they're really listening, is as rich a thing as laughter. It's a wonderful thing to hear that silence. Tony, um, you are now going to sign um, some books, um, several of them, I believe. I You've written quite a number, including Beside Myself, I think, um, which is one of your autobiographical books. Anyway, go to the Littleton Circle, uh, where Tony will be. Um, and Sir Anthony, if I may use your title for the first time, Thank you so much for joining us. We've all had a great time. Thank you.